And now a sermon for you moms. And the title of the message is Grace in a Dysfunctional Family. How many of you know someone who's in a dysfunctional family? Raise your hand. Okay. So this will help you as you seek to help others and maybe yourself. And I say uh, grace in a dysfunctional family uh, because obviously we're going to see God's grace at work in a family of great dysfunction at the time that our passage takes place. But also this message today is about a woman named Hannah and the Hebrew word Hannah is the Hebrew word for grace. So today we will truly see grace, Hannah, in a dysfunctional family and what she does therein. It is true that most women come into marriage with high dreams of being a good wife and having a good family, having a model home, and having model children that will be an inspiration to the world. Yet it's often not long before a woman realizes that she failed to marry the model husband and that she herself is not the model woman that she had hoped that she would be and that her children are not the model children that she had envisioned. Every woman at some point experiences profound disappointment in her circumstances as the reality of her family life ends up falling short of her highest dreams. And this pain is often compounded by social media where everyone seems to put their best foot forward on Facebook and what have you, giving the impression that they are living the dream that has eluded you. And perhaps your greatest disappointment is with yourself. In her book, To Moms, Brenda Payne may describe how some of you ladies feel today, or at least at times, in her book entitled Motherhood. She writes, a mother is one who gives life, but these days, far from feeling like a life giver, you feel drained of life. Perhaps you are looking around at all the other good Christian mothers with their good Christian children and wondering what's wrong with me and my kids. How could I be failing at one of the most important things in all of life, parenthood? How could I mess up something that I was so looking forward to doing? You ever felt that way? If you are feeling anything like this and you're wondering what to do, I want you to be encouraged by Hannah and what she does in First Samuel chapter 1 and 2. And if you think your circumstances are a mess, just wait until you see what her circumstances are. No one would have ever looked at Hannah's family situation and thought, wow, this is the ideal situation for God to show up and do something great. No one would have thought that. But in the end, God accomplishes something of world-altering significance. And today, those of us sitting in this room, we are still living in the good of what God did in and through Hannah many thousands of years ago in the middle of her dysfunctional situation. 
And God wants to work through you as well, sister. So let's take a look at Hannah's story and let's see what she does and let's see what God does through her that was so wonderful. Uh, First of all, let's just uh, try to look at the story of dysfunction that we see in the, in the passage today. Let's begin in verse one. It says, now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. And the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. From what follows in the narrative that we're going to be looking at, the order of the names um, alone, even in the passage I just read, would tell us that Hannah was the first and the primary wife of Elkanah. And this is what the ancient Jewish interpreters believed as well universally. And being his first wife, we can safely assume that Hannah would have come into this marriage with dreams of being able to give to her husband children and that she would be a good mother to those children. But evidently a few years go by and Elkanah realizes that Hannah cannot give him children. So he stays married to Hannah, but marries a second wife so that through this second wife, he can get what he was failing to get from Hannah. Polygamy was never God's design for marriage from the beginning. And as you read the scripture, you see that it always creates complications that God's original design was intended to avoid But the Old Testament is populated with men who went this route and settled for something that was less than God's design and had more than one wife. And Elkanah was one of such men who took this route. And you can imagine the pain that his choice would have brought to Hannah to see her husband take a second wife in order to obtain children that Hannah was unable to to provide for him. And you can imagine Hannah's pain when Elkanah, uh, when his plan seems to actually work. In verse two, we're told that Penina had children, but Hannah had none. And now Hannah has to share the household with this other woman and the children that she has provided for Elkanah. I'm sure that Hannah had ways of avoiding Penina in the normal course of life, but when they would gather together and travel as a family once a year for worship in Shiloh, Penina was impossible to avoid. And this is when things would get especially difficult for Hannah. Observe what the text says beginning in verse 3. It says, now this man, Elkanah, would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, 
and to all her sons and her daughters. Notice that expression, all her sons and her daughters. That tells us that Penina, just the plural, sons and daughters, tells us that she had at least two sons and two daughters. And the word all being used here would seem to imply at least three or more. So she had at least four children and perhaps more. Ancient Jewish tradition says that she had a total of 10 children, 10 sons and daughters, although there's no way for us to know that for sure. However many children Penina had, it was at least four or more. We're told here that Elkanah would give portions to Penina and to all of her several children when they would gather for this worship meal. But observe what he gives to Hannah in verse 5. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. He gave Hannah a double portion of food, not because she loved to eat, but as a way of honoring her and expressing his love for her. Nonetheless, verse 5 ends with the words, but the Lord had closed her womb. Those words right there, but the Lord had closed her womb, sound almost like a punctuation mark that ended every sentence in Hannah's life. Any positive statement that one could have made about Hannah could conclude with the words, but the Lord had closed her womb. To make matters worse, observe what happens in verse 6. Her rival, that's Penina, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. There's those words again at the end of verse 6. Penina is clearly an unworthy woman. She is not content to simply have children that God has blessed her with. She sees that Hannah has none, yet she sees Elkanah giving to Hannah a double portion, and she, no doubt, is jealous of that. So she finds a way to get under Hannah's skin and provoke Hannah to bitterness and jealousy during their annual meal of worship before the Lord in Shiloh. And she would take pleasure in Hannah's misery. And this didn't just happen one year. Look at verse 7. And it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her so that she, Hannah, wept and would not eat. Going to Shiloh to worship God should have been a wonderful occasion to look forward to, but it became a nightmare for Hannah, a nightmare that she came to dread year after year. It got so bad that Hannah would refuse to finish eating the double portion that Elkanah had honored her with. She would reject that honor because her heart was in such pain and provocation. Well, what does a husband do in a situation like this? Bless his heart. Elkanah sees what's going on and decides that I think an intervention is needed, and he doesn't rebuke Penina. He addresses Hannah and he takes a stab at addressing the problem by asking Hannah four questions. Look at the first three of these questions. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, 
Why do you weep? That's a good question, right? And why do you not eat? That's a good question. And why is your heart sad? That's a good question. And on the surface, it seems like he might be asking these questions because he wants to draw her out and give her the opportunity to share her pain and the reason for her pain. But the fourth question reveals that this was not his intent at all. His fourth question shows that he knows why Hannah is sad. He knows that her sadness of heart has something to do with her lack of children And he doesn't think that that is justifiable grounds for her being sad. At the end of verse 8, he says, Am I not better to you than ten sons? What he's saying is, how can you be so sad when you have me? (laughs) Is not having me better than experiencing the dream of having ten sons? Sons? By the way, for Father's Day, I've been thinking this week about giving all of our dads a T-shirt that says, (laughs) Better Than Ten Sons. How many of you men would wear that shirt? All right. I would wear it. (laughs) And I know Elkanah would wear it. Uh, And on the back of the shirt could be the words, right, honey? (laughs) (laughs) But think about Elkanah's cluelessness here. The question is being asked by a man who married a second wife. And the spirit of his question is, what can you be so sad about when you have me? What can you be so sad about when I love you more than I love this second wife that I took and that I chose to marry? What can you be so sad about when I I just gave you a double portion of food? He seems to think that the double portion of food is supposed to make her feel better. And just having him is all the blessing that she would need. I'm not going to give him a hard time for this because I've done the same thing to my wife before. In fact, whenever family comes to visit us and, um, you know, from out of town and they're about to leave, Donna always begins to tear up and start crying. And I, uh, as they're driving away, I want to minister comfort to her. So I think what's the best thing she has going on in her life? And, I'll, and I'll, I'll always say to her, I'll put my arm around her and say, you still have me. <laughs> and my intent is to comfort her, uh, but it never seems to really comfort her. Sometimes she weeps even <laughs> more. But that's, that's, this is what Elkanah is doing. And I think us guys, I think we can, we can get what's going on uh, here. The writer of 1 Samuel tells us about this exchange because he wants us to realize that Hannah's husband, Elkanah, doesn't understand her pain. 
which makes a woman's pain all the worse. We know from what happens next that Hannah is not comforted in the least. She makes no reply to her husband, but she does respond. And this is what we begin to see in the coming verses. And God is going to use her response and her actions here to bring about a result that is going to loom very large in messianic history, impacting all of us in this room even today. We are saved today through Jesus Christ, in part because of what Hannah does in our passage this morning inside of the dysfunctional mess that she finds herself in. Let's look at the six actions of Hannah that enable God to do something world-altering through her in the midst of her dysfunctional family situation. The first thing that she does is she goes to God and pours out her soul in prayer. She goes to God and pours out her soul in prayer. She realizes that no one understands what she is feeling. Her husband definitely doesn't understand. So she resolves to run to the one person that she can confide in, and that is God. Look what she does in verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking at Shiloh. In other words, after the eating and the drinking was done, she gets up, and the next verse implies that she goes somewhere near the front entrance to the tabernacle of the Lord. And look at what happens when she arrives. Verse nine, now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she, bitter of soul, prayed to the Lord and wept greatly. Notice the three expressions here. Bitter of soul, prayed to the Lord, wept greatly. Hannah's soul is not a pretty picture right now. There's a lot of ugliness and pain in her heart. And she comes pouring all of that out through her tears and through the words that she speaks to God as she prays to him. And some of you might think, wow, she comes to God with bitterness of soul. Shouldn't she get that bitterness taken care of before coming to God? In prayer, actually, guys, the way to take care of your bitterness problem is to bring it to God in prayer. I trust you understand that true worship is not simply bringing the best of your heart to God. True worship often entails bringing the mess of your heart to God and trusting him with that. And inviting him to help you with that. And that's what Hannah is doing here. Her husband does not understand, but God will understand. And she pours out her heart to him. And somehow in the midst of all of this gushing of soul, Hannah manages to make one request to God. In 1 Samuel 1.11, she says, give your maidservant a son. She's clearly asking God for a son. And she's praying for a miracle. Little does she realize that she's already God's little miracle. Oftentimes when God wants to do a great work, he first performs the miracle of bringing someone to a place of desperation and desperate prayer where they're coming to him and asking him specifically in desperation for certain things. So right now God is looking at Hannah, I think, and he's saying to his angels, you see that woman bowed before me in prayer? 
She's my little miracle. Behold what I have wrought in bringing her to this place and pouring out her soul to me and making this request. There's another thing that Hannah does, and this brings us to the second action of Hannah that enables God to do something world-altering through her in the midst of her dysfunctional family situation, and that is, number two, she surrenders to God the thing that she most wants for herself. What happens next reveals the fact that something good is happening to Hannah's heart while she is praying. Her heart is not just being poured out. It's undergoing an adjustment as she prays. She's clearly not just venting her heart to God, but she is giving God a chance to work in her heart and to bend her heart in the direction that he wants it to go. And wonderfully, Hannah allows God to bring her heart to a place of surrender. Look at what she says in verse 11. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come to his head. In other words, my son will take the Nazarite vow and fully be dedicated to the Lord and belong to the Lord. And all I want to pull from her words for our purposes this morning is this. In Hannah's time of prayer, it seems that she begins to realize that some of her pain, at least, was not simply because she was barren, nor simply because of Penina and what Penina was doing. It seems that Hannah is realizing that some of her pain is coming from the fact that her desire for a child has taken on a level of meaning and importance to her that is now approaching idolatry. So in this moment of surrender, she stabs a knife right into the heart of this idolatry by actually saying to God, Lord, if you will give me a son, I will give that son back to you. He will not be mine. He will be yours all the days of his life. This means that Hannah is not wanting a son for herself anymore. Or maybe to provoke Penina to jealousy. She's not even wanting a son for her husband anymore. She's wanting God to give her a son so that she can give that son back to God. That's surrender. And I think in our lives, that's the place where God often wants us to be. Bringing us to a place where all we really care is that God receive what he's entitled to. And when God brings us to that point, it's amazing what he does sometimes in giving to us. There's another thing that Hannah does, and this brings us to the third action of Hannah that enables God to do something world-altering through her in the midst of her dysfunctional family situation, and that is she changes her countenance even before God changes her circumstances. Something of messianic, world-altering significance is going to happen 
in this situation. And the first harbinger of that work is a woman pouring out her soul in prayer to God and then surrendering that thing that she most wanted to God. And it also involves a change in her face, in her countenance, even before God changes her circumstances. Observe how this change of countenance occurs, starting in verse 12. Now, it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. He's telling her to stop drinking so much, to stop showing up at church drunk, and to put away her habit of overindulging in wine, which now adds even further insult to Hannah's injury. She can't have the children she wants. Penina is provoking her. Her husband doesn't understand her. And now even her pastor is rebuking her for being drunk when all she's doing is praying. It seems that Hannah can't catch a break. Imagine that I came up to you during worship today and said to you, how dare you show up here drunk? Go home and sleep off your wine before you come back here. What would you do? That's what's basically happening to her at her lowest moment as she comes to God in all sincerity and pours out the bitterness and provocation of her soul in prayer. And to her credit, Hannah does not seem to get overly offended. Look at what she does in verse 15. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And I love Hannah's choice of words here. She's basically saying, Eli, I have not been pouring wine into me. I've been pouring my soul out to the Lord. Hannah then says in verse 16, do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. She wants him to know that she's not under the control of alcohol here She's intoxicated with pain and with provocation and depression of spirit. Well, somewhat chastened, Eli replies, look at verse 17. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight, which was her way of saying thank you. The interesting thing here, guys, is that Eli doesn't seem to even know what Hannah has asked from the Lord, but he sees the genuineness of her spirit. He observes that God must be at work in forming the petition of her heart. So Eli says, may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And given what happens next, we know that these words from Eli are a direct word from the Lord to Hannah through Eli, letting her know 
that he will, in fact, be giving her the son that she is asking for so that she can then give that son to God. And the text says in verse 18, so the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. The expression translated face was no longer sad is an awkward expression in the Hebrew. Uh, Literally, it could be translated her face was no more. (laughs) Her face was gone. She lost face. What does that mean? It means that the face that she had, it means that the face that she had been wearing for a long period now, the sad face was gone. That's the idea. Her despondent and tearful face, as everyone had come to know it in recent days, was completely gone. And what's astounding to me here is that her circumstances have not yet changed at all. She has not conceived a child in her womb yet. She has not given birth yet. She's still living in a dysfunctional family situation with Penina and her children in the house. And yet, though Hannah's circumstances have not changed at all, her countenance has undergone a change. I'm sure she came back to her tent an hour or so later And Elkanah looked at her and thought, what happened to her? Something's different about her. Why is her face different? Perhaps Penina and her children noticed, and they wondered at this change that was wrought in Hannah's countenance. And they all would have thought, something has happened, and there's something that Hannah is in on that we're not in on. There's something she knows that we don't know. So can I give you some counsel, ladies? When God wants to do great miracles in your circumstances, sometimes he wants to begin with your face. He starts in your heart and he brings you to a place of surrender like he does Hannah. And then he performs a makeover on your countenance. And he wants the change in your countenance to serve as the first visible harbinger of things to come. That's what's happening to Hannah here. The early rays of God's coming miracle were observable on her face. And I encourage you ladies, this would go for men as well, but I Encourage you ladies to wear the kind of countenance that lets everyone around you know that you know something. You know what's up and you know that God is always up to something good. You've poured out your soul to God in prayer. You've surrendered yourself to him as Hannah has done. You know that God has heard your prayer and you know that God is going to work all things together for good, for your good and the good of others and for his glory. In other words, act, sister, like you know something. And when the miracles come, may people think back on your countenance and say to themselves, I saw the outlines of this miracle first on the face of my mom. 
or my wife or this woman in my life. I'm probably a lot like you guys when I'm flying on an airplane. Whenever I'm on a plane and we hit significant turbulence, I always look at the same thing you look at. I find a flight attendant and I look at their countenance. And if their countenance is serene, then I rest easy. If their countenance shows that they're worried, then that would tell me something about how to interpret what's going on around me. And guys, you could have looked at Hannah's face here in verse 18 and known just by looking at her face that everything was going to be okay. God is about to do something wonderful through Hannah. He's about to do something wonderful in her womb. And the morning star of that miracle was her changed countenance. Ladies, never underestimate the importance of your countenance in your parenting and in your marriage and in your relationships with others and how much your family and the people in your life are impacted by your countenance. And if I can give you gals a beauty tip for Mother's Day, in fact, if you got a pen or pencil, you might want to write this down. The most powerful cosmetics on the planet are prayer, surrender, and trust. Prayer, surrender, and trust. Get whatever else you need from the beauty supply person in your life, but don't neglect these, and they're free. Prayer, surrender, and trust. And these have been applied to Hannah's countenance in our passage today. There's another thing that Hannah does, and this brings us to the fourth action of Hannah that enables God to do something world-altering through her in the midst of her dysfunctional family situation, and that is she shares, evidently, she shares her vow with her husband who joins her in her surrender. If you think about it, guys, it's really a bold and a risky thing for a woman to say to God, Lord, give me a son, and if you do, I will give my son to you, and, and I will place him under the Nazarite vow, and he'll belong to you all the days of his life. That's a risky thing to vow to God in prayer when your husband doesn't even know that this is what you're committing to. But this is what Hannah does, and God responds. Look at what happens in verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. She basically named him prayer request. This is what I asked for from the Lord, and he has answered my prayer. So she conceives in her womb some point after she had appeared before the Lord in Shiloh, and nine months later she gives birth, and then it would have been two or three months after that that it's time now to go back to Shiloh for the annual pilgrimage and observe what happens in verse 21. Then the man 
Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay what? His vow, not her vow, his vow. What vow is that? Commentators, some of them suggest that his vow is the vow that he has now evidently joined together with Hannah in to the point where her vow now has become his vow. On the screen, there's a passage, Numbers 30, verses 6 through 8, where there's actually provision in the Old Testament law that if a woman, if a wife makes a vow and the husband doesn't like the vow that she made, he had the power to nullify her vow so that she was no longer bound to it. But evidently, Elkanah has not nullified Hannah's vow At some point, she would have shared this with him and he would have embraced it and made it his own. And now he's ready to pay on the vow, which he now owns as his. And Samuel's just two or three months old. And Elkanah's like, let's take him and let's carry out this vow. He's not thinking logistics Uh, But Hannah is, she is not ready to bring Samuel just yet. Look at verse 21 and following the text says, but Hannah did not go up for she said to actually, this is verse 22, I think. But Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. Elkanah seems very concerned that Hannah's vow get paid and that God's word come to pass. Remember, Eli had told Hannah God had heard her prayer. He would bring it to pass. So implied in that is God is going to grant your petition and give you a son so that you can then give that son back. That's the word of the Lord. And Elkanah wants to make sure that Hannah's vow and that God's word through Eli comes to pass. And Hannah intends to do that, but she's not going to drop her three-month-old off at the tabernacle and leave him there. So look at what she does in verse 23. The text says, so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him, which would have happened somewhere around the age of three. So eventually the time comes after Samuel is weaned to bring him to the tabernacle and present him to the Lord. And this brings us to the fifth action of Hannah that enables God to do something world altering through her in the midst of her dysfunctional family situation. And that is she follows through and gives her son to the Lord. You see, a lesser woman would have sort of made a vow and then gotten a son out of it and then forgotten the promise or the vow that she had made to God. But Hannah is not that kind of woman. Look at verse 24. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah a flower and a jug of wine and brought him, Samuel, to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Again, Samuel was probably around three 
in his late threes, uh, three to four years old at this, this point. And observe what Hannah and Elkanah do in verse 25. Then they, not just he and not just her, but they together, Hannah and Elkanah together, slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord for this boy. I prayed and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And as for Samuel, look at the end of verse 28. And he worshiped the Lord there. Tied to this giving of her son to the Lord, there's one final thing that Hannah does. And this brings us to the final action of Hannah in the midst of her difficult family situation And that is she worships God, praising him for his messianic providence. She worships God, praising him for his messianic providence. It's so obvious that God has done so much in Hannah's heart, in her life. But let's not forget that there's still dysfunction in her family. There's still Penina with her several children trying to provoke Hannah. And Hannah right now is handing her son over to the service of the tabernacle. Her son will not be coming home with her, which means she will be at home alone again without a child. And I am sure that Hannah in this moment experienced some feelings of sadness and saying goodbye to her son and leaving him with Eli as she returns home. But rather than weeping and feeling sad, she explodes in this amazing song of praise right as she's giving her son away to the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah is rejoicing. She's rejoicing in God's salvation. Clearly, the biggest miracle in this story is not what happened inside Hannah's womb, but what has happened in her heart. We're not going to read this morning the entirety of the words that Hannah utters in this song of praise. If you've not read it already, I would encourage you to read through the full length of this song. But it is a song that is 10 verses long. And look with me at the very last verse, the climax of of this song. She says, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered against them. He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Hannah seems to be saying, I don't know how, But I know that God is doing something through this that's going to redound all the way to the ends of the earth. And then look at what she says next in verse 10. And he will give strength to his king. There's no king in Israel right now. This is the end of the period of the judges when there was no king in Israel And she's talking about God giving strength to his king. 
What king is she talking about? Well, look at her final statement in verse 10. And he, God, will exalt the horn of his anointed. The Hebrew is he will exalt the horn of his Mashiach, his Messiah. That's the Hebrew here. The Greek Septuagint translation and the Latin Vulgate translation translate this. He will exalt the horn of his Christ. This is the word Christ that we see throughout the New Testament in reference to Jesus. This is the first time in Scripture that the word Mashiach is used in reference to the Messiah. And it's found on the lips of Hannah as she's handing her son over to the Lord. So we're not surprised to see in Scripture hundreds and hundreds of years later when Mary, the mother of Jesus, conceives the Messiah in her womb, that Mary will actually lift concepts from Hannah's song and put them in her own song in Luke chapter 1. In fact, look at some of these parallels very quickly. Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord. Mary will sing, my soul exalts the Lord. Hannah says, I rejoice in your salvation. Mary will sing, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Hannah sings, there is no one holy like the Lord. Mary will sing, holy is his name. Hannah sings, he brings low, he also exalts. And Mary will sing, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. For her part, Hannah is realizing a variety of things in this moment, although she wouldn't have known what all to do with this. She's thinking, I don't know how all this fits in, but something huge is going on here and it's way bigger than me. This gift of a son and my surrender of this son to the Lord is going to serve God's purpose of bringing his righteous judgment to the ends of the earth. And somehow, some way, this will have something to do with a coming king who will be the anointed one, the Messiah. Little could Hannah have realized what God was really up to. Samuel will be left at the tabernacle here and he will grow up and he will serve as the last judge of Israel. He will be God's mouthpiece to Israel over the coming decades. Two books of the Bible will be named after him. It will be Samuel who will lead Israel to the monarchy. It will be Samuel who will anoint King Saul and it will be Samuel who will tell Saul decades later that God has rejected him from being king and rejected his house. And it will be Samuel who will go to the house of a man named Jesse. And in defiance of everyone's expectations, he will look at each of the sons of Jesse that are presented before him and say, no, 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 no. Do you have another son anywhere? Yeah, he's outside in the field watching the sheep. Bring him to me. And so they bring 
David before Samuel. And Samuel will point the finger at David and say, this is the one. And he will anoint David to be the anointed king. David eventually will come to sit on the throne of Israel and descending from David will be the Messiah. In other words, it will be Samuel's finger that God will use essentially to locate the man who will reign, whose house will reign over the house of Israel forever. The one from whom the Messiah will descend. It will be Samuel's very hands that God will use to anoint King David from whom the true anointed one will descend. In other words, Samuel himself is going to participate in a chain of events that will eventually lead to the Messiah coming to this earth 2,000 years ago to live the life of righteousness that we all have failed to live and to die the death on the cross that all of us deserved to die and then be raised from the dead and then ascended to the right hand of the throne of God And from that position of rule and authority to bring salvation and forgiveness of sins to everyone who looks to him, Jesus, and calls upon him to be their Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you're wondering who you should listen to and who you should make the boss of your life, whom you should make your Lord and Savior and King, Samuel would point his finger to Jesus And say, he is the one. Believe in him. You could point to other things and say, what about this? What about this? Samuel would say, no, 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 no. Jesus. He's the anointed one and the only one entitled to be your true king. And it is to this Jesus that Hannah herself is pointing to. In the last verse of her song. Well, as for Hannah, what happens to her after this moment? Well, we know that she got to visit her son each year when she and the family would go up to Shiloh. So her relationship with Samuel continued. And if you read in 1 Samuel 2, verses 18 through 21, I believe you learn that God gave Hannah three more sons and two daughters just for the extravagant fun of it meaning that Hannah ends up with six children total and teaching us guys that you can't outgive God. God's not, hey, I got that son from her that I wanted. No, he receives that son. And then Hannah experienced so much blessing even through Samuel in the days to come as she watched him being used of the Lord. And then God gives her five more children. Six children in total. You cannot outgive God. God is a good God. And he invites you to surrender to him and to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness so that he can then be the one to bless you in far richer ways than you could ever bless yourself. That's what he does for Hannah. And it's the same God who invites us to surrender ourselves to him. So ladies, what 
kind of dysfunctional situation do you find in your life right now? Whatever it is, God is a God who delights to show up in exactly these kinds of situations and do a work that fits beautifully with his larger plan of redemption for the world. It may be that God is looking right now for a woman who's willing to fall to her knees in prayer before him and to surrender all that she wants to him. And that woman that God is looking for may be you. Whatever situation you're in, I just want to encourage you that you are not beyond the reach of God doing something amazing in your life and through you. Keep praying, keep pouring out your soul in prayer to God. Keep surrendering. God is the one who writes last chapters and your last chapter has not been written The last chapter of your family has not yet been written. God loves you. God loves your family. And he is good. And he loves your children more than you do. And you can take that to the bank. And you can wear the knowledge of that on your countenance. And you can walk out of here today acting like you know something. Will you do that? Let's look to him in prayer. We marvel at your gracious sovereignty, Lord. You obviously want moms and dads to love each other and to do things right and to raise their children to know and love you. And and there's so much blessing when things are done right. You're fighting for our pleasure when you call us to do things your way. But we're reminded afresh here, as in many places in Scripture, that you are not looking to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for the perfect family with no dysfunction and no brokenness so that you can use that perfect family. No, you are a physician for those who are sick and you are a God who loves to take the broken reed and make it whole. You're a God who delights to move into broken situations of great dysfunction and even sin and, and perform amazing deeds as you do on Hannah's behalf here. And so we look to you this morning and ask, Lord, that you would bring us to a place of prayer, bring us to a place of surrender, bring us to a place of trust. And do what only you can do. Work in us and through us in a way that fits into the larger scheme of your plan of redemption for the world. If there's any here today, this morning, Lord, that have not 
look to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray that you would move in their hearts, bring life to their souls, that they would look to Jesus and see him like they've never seen him before, and that they would so see the glory of Jesus that they would consider it an intolerable suffering to live another minute apart from him. Save people even right now by drawing them to your son, empowering them to call upon your name even where they're seated. We thank you for the opportunity to give of our offerings to you, Lord. Receive the funds that we give in this offering. Do much with all that is given. We also surrender ourselves to you. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said.